This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What we would like to do today is take you on a little bit of a journey. Um, to start with, let's focus on the anatomy of the spine. It's something that some of you will be familiar with and others would perhaps like a refresher on or even an introduction to. And the spine is a complicated uh, area of the body and it does require and does have little nuances when we are examining it and, and coming up with a physical therapy intervention for people with back pain. We have within the spine many pathologies but what we would like to do is concentrate or focus on three particular pathologies. We have chosen these pathologies to, to, which we believe are very common and hopefully resonate with some of you or um, at least allow you to have a further information regarding those particular cases that you may either be able to help family or friends or otherwise. From there, we will progress on to physical therapy and what we actually do as physical therapists in terms of the assessment or treatments Uh, the benefits and even the potential risks of physical therapy so that you are fully informed of what you'd be getting involved in should you come and see us in the clinic. We have run through or we have developed three case studies for you as well and with these case studies it's more to highlight the different um, types of therapy that we can offer uh, for each pathology and again the differences that we would look to do for different pathologies in that sense. From there we will be open to any questions. Anatomy. Let's start at the basics. Back to the bones and discs. So it's the thing that most people think about when they're considering the spine. The bones comprise of a number of different areas. We, and excuse me for my laser point skills, but we start with the body of the vertebrae. We have the pedicles, we have a spinous process, and we have a transverse process, uh, one on each side. We then also have the joints, of which in the lumbar spine there is three between each vertebrae. You have the intervertebral joint, so this portion here, and then you also have a facet joint on the left and the right-hand side. In between the vertebral bodies, there is the disc. Now, in the disc, it is made up of two separate or distinct parts. We have the annulus, and we also have the nucleus proposa. I often like to describe the disc like a a jam donut. So in the centre you have that squishy jam part. On the outside it's more fibrous, it's more like a bun. And that's the best analogy I've come up with. If anybody has a better analogy, please let me know at the end and I'll happily use that. From there, as you can see, building on top of these things, building on top of the bones and the joints, then we have to think about the ligaments. Again, this is a snapshot, and I will introduce one or two ligaments, but it's really to give you an idea of the complexity and the amount of anatomical features that are present within this particular part of the spine. We can have a look at the um, anterior longitudinal ligament. We have a posterior longitudinal ligament. We have transverse uh, process ligaments, and we have the spinous process ligaments as well. Now, that is just a a slight flavour of the different ligaments in there. There are numerous other ones. And again, all of these structures can be injured. So any of these structures can cause you pain or dysfunction. 
So again, that has just has gone through two layers of the anatomy. So if we move on to the next layer, which is the muscles, and I apologize for this slide. It looks very complicated and looks like there's a lot of information because there is a lot of information there. There is a ton of muscles within the spine. Some relate to deeper muscles, which are often described as core or stabilizing muscles, and that might be a term that many of you are familiar with. You then have more superficial muscles, again within the trunk area, and often they are described as movement or mobility muscles. Now, those are general terms, and there is more detail to that, but just as an overview, it's a, it's a nice way to think about things. Now, again, that's just looking at the muscles within the trunk itself. We then have to consider all the additional muscles which will have an impact on the movements or on the forces generated through the trunk. And those muscles often come from the legs and thighs, including the gluteal muscles, hamstring muscles, hip flexor muscles, including psoas muscle, which actually attaches into the anterior portion of many of the lumbar vertebrae. In addition to that, some of the muscles that relate to the shoulder and the scapula also have an impact on the, um, on the spine and how movements and function can be developed that way. A simple example of that is the latissimus dorsi. Now, this is just really to highlight and to emphasize to you that our jobs are really difficult and we would like as much, you know, grat anyway, I'm only kidding. Okay. So... One of the things that is very consistent with physical therapy is we are principally interested in muscles, bones, joints, ligaments. That's our bread and butter. But the other aspect that we cannot forget and must not forget is that there are many organs within the abdominal cavity. Now, the majority of you or any doctors in here who will be much, much better at assessing these particular um, visceral or organ-based um, components than perhaps a physical therapist will be. But what many of you will know is that organs, the viscera of the organs, can actually generate pain as well. So it is important for a physical therapist or when we're coming through an assessment at physical therapy to consider that the organs may be generating pain and it might not be a purely muscular skeletal problem in itself. So again, like I say, we have complicated jobs. Okay, so this is really coming on to, the, to really what physical therapists have to offer and, and hopefully that's, that's starting to come through. And one of the simplest ways or one of the many questions that we're now asked as a profession is, well, how do you differ from, from doctors? You know, how do you make your diagnoses? And a simple way to think about it or to look at it is a physical therapist will diagnose you functionally. We will look at which ways you have movement impairments. We will relate those to either weaknesses or lack of movement related to tight muscles. And we will see how that affects your functional or your day-to-day -day activities, whether that be walking up and down stairs, going for a run, swimming, sitting in a chair comfortably, etc., etc. Now, this differs from how a medical doctor will diagnose you. A medical doctor will give you a pathoanatomical diagnosis. These are things like your degenerative disc diseases, stenosis, uh, facet hypertrophy, or arthropathies. So I hope that was quite clear. Okay, 
It's roughly about 20 minutes, okay? Now, as physical therapists, we encourage everybody to move. Again, this is our bread and butter. So what we'd like to do at 20-minute break is just have everybody put their arms up in the air. Okay? Put your arms back down. Arms up in the air. Move to the side. Move to the side. Move to the side. Move to the side. See? Movement's fun. Okay. All right. Have you done that in any of the other lectures? I just want to know that. Okay. All right. So moving forward. And again, if anybody does actually genuinely need to get up and move around, please do feel free to. Uh, we know sitting for a long period of time is not good for you or is not most comfortable for many people. So please get up and feel free to move. Okay. Now we're getting into the more of the statistics and the, the nuts and bolts and what the research says at the moment. Unfortunately, lower back pain remains one of the most common causes of dis disability and lost work time among adult uh, wor or working-aged adults across the world or industrialised countries. As many as 80% of people at any given time, depending on the research that is done and the populations are looked at, have been defined as having lower back pain. That is a huge number, a huge, huge number. And just for interest's sake or for comparison, can I ask everybody who has ever experienced back pain at any time of their life, even if it's just for a day, to put your hand up? Yeah, as you can see, if it's not over 80%. Okay. Now, the other interesting part for that, from our perspective, is this is the number one reason why we see patients. So back pain is the most common condition that patients will be referred to physical therapy for. So again, we like to think of this almost as our, our bread and butter and what we're, what we're really good at treating or what we're looking to treat. Now, saying that we're good at treating it is perhaps a controversial comment because there's been huge investment, huge research into this area, but still our level or our success in improving or getting people rid of their conditions or getting rid of their pain has not matched that, that progression or that research. So that's just something to bear in mind at the moment. Now, speaking of back pain and as many as 80% of people throughout the longevity of their lives will experience back pain, a recent study has shown that up to 30% of the US population is suffering from chronic back pain. So that's a huge number. So three out of your 10 friends out of all your neighbours in your street, how many of those are experiencing chronic back pain? So again, it starts to look or it starts to show the significance of this condition and what it means to the societal and the economic impact on countries, on healthcare systems. Okay. I've included this slide, and I hope, again, that it's, that it's clear and people can see it. And... What it relates to, what we're looking at, is radiological findings based on, generation, uh, based on uh, decades or age of life. Now, I'd like to stress that these numbers are representative of people who do not complain of pain. So this is an asymptomatic population. So if you're around the 50-year mark and you go and have an X-ray, you have an 80% chance of being diagnosed with degenerative disc disease. Now again, remember, these are people who do not have pain. Of that number, 
60% will have a disc bulge. Again, how many of you may or may not have had x-rays, but you start to look down these imaging findings and say, well, that's what my doctor told me. I've been told I have that. And again, these are asymptomatic, asymptomatic patients, so they have no pain, but these are the findings that occur when they're given an x-ray. To really highlight the point, or really to hone in on the point, if you're of the age of 70, you have a 93% chance of having a degenerative disc on an x-ray. And again, remembering this is where it's asymptomatic. So if I return back to one of the slides, um, a previous slide, where we looked at the difference between a physical therapist's diagnosis and a medical doctor's diagnosis, this is where this information starts to become really relevant. Because you may not have any limitations. You may not have any pain. You may not have any problems whatsoever. But if you saw a doctor and you were given an x-ray, you'd be medicalized. Because they would have to legally report on these, on these findings, because that, that is the way the system has worked. And you would be given one of these pathologies. Or you'd be told that you have one of these pathologies. But again, it doesn't mean you'd have pain, and it doesn't correlate to dysfunction, and it doesn't correlate to disability. Okay, hopefully I've stressed that point enough. Okay. Another interesting um, study that has come out, this one was done about seven years ago. Now, it looks at over 3,000 cases of workers who were given either an early MRI or were not given an early MRI. For those who were not given an early MRI, they found on average that within 22 days they would get past their kind of their uh, experience of disability or their limitations. Their medical costs would be under roughly about £3,000 or $3,000, beg your pardon. I'm skipping across the, the Atlantic again there. Um, and for those who would then actively have surgery, it's less than 1%. Now, if from that same group, from that same uh, study, if they were given an early MRI within two weeks of having their occurrence of lower back pain, their duration of first disability would last on average 133 days. Your medical costs would be closer to $22,000. And about 22% of them would probably be pushed or look for surgery in those cases. So as you can see, this is the same cohort, same group, but just by the way that we take you through the medical system, the outcomes can become very, very different. Okay. So, now that I've scared you all, we'll come on to a couple of com common pathologies. So, what we'd like to focus on is degenerative disc disease. Stenosis. And sciatica. From these, we've chosen these, as I say, because they're very common. And they also illustrate differences and how pathologies are diagnosed. The, de the degenerative disc disease and the stenosis are characterized by radiographic findings. So again, that's going back to the x-rays and speaking to your doctor because you have lower back pain. They send you for an x-ray. The x-ray shows this, these results. So there's your, your characterization. 
Sciatica, though, is a little bit different. Sciatica, because it is, has a very clear presentation, lower back pain, with pain radiating into one leg, usually doesn't require x-rays or MRIs for a diagnosis. The doctor will look at you, you give them your subjective information, they may do a test or two, and they'll tell you you have sciatica and send you for, to the physical therapist, hopefully. Okay, so again, just differences with different types of conditions will lead you down different medical paths. Okay, degenerative disc disease. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of it, as they say. On the left, this is a healthy disc. On the right, this is what would be defined as a degenerative disc. Now, as we have stated in the previous slides, as we age, degenerative discs will occur. That is a natural aging process. That is not something to be alarmed about. That is a normal occurrence. Some of these, some, not all, may result in pain. What happens on a physiological or an anatomical level is that we start to lose... Um, signaling or the, the hydrophilic properties within the disc itself, the actual joint height will reduce and you may have occurrences of osteophytes, which is an increase in bony growth or bone spurs as sometimes they're referred to. It is also possible within the disc itself that you may get small cracks or fissures within the annular or the outer, the outer surface. It is unlikely, or within this specific condition, it is not common that we will see the, the jelly-like or that internal jam donut uh, substance in the center pushing out or bulging out. That is where it would be diagnosed as a bulging disc or a prolapsed disc. So again, we're just looking at the, the quality of the disc changing over time. Common presentation for degenerative disc disease. You can have pain in that particular spinal area. If Again, if we're focusing on the lower back, that would be in the lumbar area. If we're focusing on the neck, then obviously the pain would be closer to the neck. You can have some pain referred into the legs or even into the thighs and buttocks. It's not, it's not common. It is not necessarily there for everybody, but it can happen. Changes in your sensory system, such as pins and needles, or reduced sensation to touch, again, can occur when neural tissue is involved. But again, this is not the, it is not the necessity for all of these conditions. It is just something that can occur almost as, a, as an addition. Other common findings within this group can be muscle spasms, nerve involvement, which we've already touched on, there can be changes to the spine, so we would refer to that as spinal deformity or, or an asymmetry within the spine. And patients often discuss feeling limited or stiff within their motions. Bending and twisting can be aggravatory, and pain is often worsened with prolonged standing for patients. Now, again, the occurrence can be through an aging-related process, or it can be from a direct trauma as well. Stenosis. Hopefully a better picture, a colourful picture for you here. With stenosis, what we're looking at is that central canal where the nerve runs is reduced in space 
or size. And often that means that the nerve may be affected or pinched. Common pain presentations within stenosis can be within the back of the legs, the thighs, the buttocks, and again, this one would actually be worsening with standing or extended positions because, again, that would reduce the space further. If it occurs with exercise, it can often be referred to as claudication or neurological claudication. Cramping or muscle weakness are common muscular findings. Numbness, or sorry, beg your pardon, leg numbness or pins and needles can be some of the sensory changes that occur. And again, it's quite common for people or patients to discuss it as being stiff or feeling that they're limited with movement. Sciatica. Sciatica is, a is, I often think of sciatica more as a syndrome rather than as a pure diagnosis in itself, and I'll explain why in a, in a second. But sciatica is commonly where the, the disc itself compresses on the nerve in the lumbar spine, and that affects the functioning of the nerve, in which case you either have pain or changes in uh, sensory or motor uh, ability down the leg. Now, the interesting part about sciatica and why it can often be described as a syndrome is it is not always the disc that causes those changes to the nerve. You can have restrictions on movement, specifically within the foraminal space where the nerve exits the spine. Tethering or adhesions along the pathway or the track of that nerve can again restrict the ability or affect the ability of the nerve, which again can produce sciatic-like symptoms. Compression from soft tissue, such as muscles which are tight or sitting in an awkward position or on your wallet or a number of other aspects, can again compress on that nerve and produce sciatic-like symptoms for some people. We can often have what's referred to as a double compression syndrome, which is where two points along that channel that the nerve runs are restricted and the combination of the dual restriction causes sciatic-like symptoms. The last one, which is also a possibility, is that the nerve itself is irritated or inflamed, such as an neuritis, which again would cause pain up and down that leg or along the distribution of the nerve, again producing sciatic-like symptoms. Common presentations, as we've touched on, is pain in the spine that radiates down the back of the leg. Typically, it does only affect one side, if it's affecting both sides, then it does raise the concern level that a therapist would have, and we would be looking to really ascertain what other things are potentially going on. Pain areas, as I say, back, buttocks, hip, and lower extremity. The pain can be mild, it can be severe, it can be sharp, it can be lancing. So there's a number of descriptors that are often used to describe sciatic-like symptoms. Numbness, pins and needles can be present. Often people talk about them within their foot, specifically toes, ball of the foot. Again, depending specifically on the nerve and the pathways which are being affected. Burning sensations, leg weakness, and limping are also other common findings for this condition. Okay, that's roughly 40 minutes. So this time I'd like everybody to stand up and we'll move the legs.
Okay, everybody just walk on the spot. So I've really messed up the camera motion here. I'd just like to point that out. So everybody just walk on the stop on the spot. Let's take a step to the right. Let's take a step to the left. Back to the right. Back to the left. Who's coming dancing tonight? No? Okay, great. I'll pass you over to Dean. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Stephen. Uh, how can I move on from that, huh? <laughs> Again, uh, thank you. Um, uh, I'm very honored to be here to kind of talk to you guys about back pain too as well. Um, I'm here to kind of talk about more of the experience when you go to physical therapy and what to expect from it as well as uh, treatments that you will most likely probably can kind of use with those three top three diagnoses that Steve just uh, mentioned about. So in a typical physical therapy assessment, uh, a subjective information will be... Uh, Collected um, subjective information is basically where we collect the the history, the mechanism of injury, or how it all started, how long it's been going on, um, what kind of functional limitations you do have as you report. Uh, for example, oh, I just bent over and I can't, you know, I have pain in my back, especially when I go ahead and do that movement, or if I sat for ten minutes or anything longer than that, and that can't, that doesn't allow me to do my job. Or a good example is from it. And that also we collect information of what are your goals, and so that way we can kind of tailor your treatment to your functional impairment. From there, um, we kind of go through a movement exam uh, where we first check your observation of your posture and everything to kind of see how well you stack up externally. Um, Steve highlighted the uh, how the degenerative changes and abnormal alignment as far as anatomy in the very beginning, and we can kind of envision to see what uh, you would potentially will look like as you stand up well. From there, we'll check your range of motion, kind of bending forward, leaning back, side to side, as well as this particular in the spine, but also checking the uh, your hips as well as your upper back and your shoulders if necessary. We'll also check your strength for your back, abdominals, as well as your hip motion, hip strength as well, as whatever that is related to your functional impairment. Special testing, as highlighted onto the slide here, uh, we use that to help differential, differentially diagnose of what we feel is contributing to the problem, similar to like the, uh, the three diagnoses that Stephen highlighted, the, the stenosis, degenerative disc disease, as well as uh, sciatica. And functional testing, that's when we see how you go ahead and move around, like a single leg squat or a regular squat or a step down would be a good idea how we can kind of see how well you can move. Through the observation portion, uh, walking, we usually have you guys walk down a hallway or a nice hall row and then see how well you walk. We just keep it as general and simple as possible so that way uh, we see how you naturally walk. It's kind of weird when the we ask somebody to walk, and you guys all start to change the way you walk. It's kind of funny. Uh, but when you guys are in pain, uh, we can kind of see that, yeah, there's hard to fake or try to make it as best as possible. Sit to stand, we just like to see how well you move, you know, especially we know what normal sit to stand movement looks like, and definitely when you do have pain, 
you will definitely move differently. You know, either lean into a side or start using your hands a little bit more. Uh, it would be a good, clear example to kind of let us know what movement strategies you guys use to help move and how we can make you guys more normal. And sit to stand is a, a, basically what we're talking about as far as transition of movement to as well. So this is an example of the range of motions that we, uh, what I just highlighted in the beginning, deflection, extension, side bend, and rotation. Um, the top part of the slide is you can see a person uh, bending forward down towards their toes, right over there, and, uh, and then leaning back here on the side here, as well as this one over here on the side is a side bending here. <laughs> We check your strength of your lumbar spine, uh, as well as your lower extremity strength. And these are just kind of just highlighting to see where your impairment is, is why you most likely had this dysfunction in the first place, or what led you to have uh, degenerative discs, what led you to have sciatica-type presentation, as well as uh, uh, st stenosis. Um, either a traumatic injury has happened, that's why you move that way, or over time, you develop a new movement pattern, and so that way you end up utilizing different muscles more dominantly, so you'll have stronger muscles in one area and weaker muscles in the other areas. And the weaker muscles are the ones that we're kind of more interested in to help have a better balance in your body to help restore that normal movement pattern, especially if the, the symptoms that you guys develop with for back pain is developed over time, not from an atypical, atraumatic, uh, traumatic type of injury. Advanced testing, neural screen. Uh, neural screen, we, we do our regular uh, neural screen testing your sensory, uh, light touch, sharp, dull. And uh, we check your uh, muscles uh, as far as how they're innervated through your spinal nerves. Uh, checking your uh, strength in your hip flexors, your straightening out your knee, as well as your uh, going on your toes, walking. Uh, these are good uh, information for us. So that way we can kind of pinpoint at least what spinal level we should be looking at uh, to determine what part should we be protecting or should we start to move around a little bit more above or below? Or how can we improve your overall motion from there? Quadrant testing is a higher level uh, uh, screening tool that we use to uh, incriminate, uh, to really put more pressure onto the spinal segment. So that way, we can definitely determine if it is a disc or any type of radiating, reproducible radiating leg symptoms down your, back, down your leg. Palpation, we check the tone of your muscles, which ones you overutilize, or how you guard. If most people who are in pain, we kind of protect that area, so you kind of feel really stiff. So we want to know how well, um, how those muscles are feeling in that area, so that way we can kind of help reduce that tension. As highlighted in the previous slides on degenerative discs, there's uh, a portion that Stephen highlighted that there is muscle spasms in that area, and then maybe that might be one of the informations, uh, interventions we might need to use to help kind of reduce that tension to help improve the, the symptoms. And passive accessory intervertebral mobilizations, just a very fancy, complex term, us saying that we are looking at how well the mobility of the individual vertebral segments are, and especially to see how well they move or how, if it does reproduce some of your symptoms as well. Functional testing, as we talked earlier, uh, checking your balance, squats, stairs, walking up, 
and downstairs, lifting and carrying. Kind of getting, again, comparison, we know really good well on um, proper movement strategies and just see how well you guys do move as well as if you, when, you do, when you guys have pain. The treatment. Majority of our treatment actually in the very beginning is really about education, uh, like we're talking about here. Educating about back pain is probably one of the biggest portions of our treatment exam. How many of you guys understand what is back pain, what is it related, and how can you guys manage it? That is the number one important thing. Because, you know, you get a treatment at, the, at our facility at UCSF, you'll get a, a visit maybe once or twice, once a week, and we can be there for you for about an hour once a week, but you still got the six other days of the week to help manage your symptoms. So uh, you have to be our eyes and ears to help us out to help control the symptoms as well as how well we can kind of improve your overall function in that regard. So because the more we, you guys help us, we definitely we can help you out. Exercise therapy, that's what everybody knows about what we do here. Um, definitely using exercises to help either address the symptoms or address the impairments that we are already presenting and why you're having the back pain in the first place. Manual therapy, joint mobilizations and soft tissue treatments. Again, addressing the symptoms to help improve your overall function to have your normalized functional activities from there. Electrotherapy. Uh, it's a modality that we do use to help with pain management if necessary, uh, for especially if, you know, if you're in a lot of pain, you won't move. So if, to help you to move, we've got to bring down the pain down a little bit, and that's one of our options that we definitely can help out with that. Pain management, mindfulness, meditation, pain education. We do a little bit of that. We touch bases on some of it. Um, for the very severe chronic back pain people, uh, we definitely kind of collaborate with psycho uh, psychotherapy psychologists to help us have patients understand uh, what is contributing to the back pain. Because sometimes back pain doesn't always correlate to a structural deficit. Back pain can be related to a lot of number environmental and behavioral stresses that can be related to the back pain itself. You know, like how people say they hold all their stress into their neck and their shoulders. You know, it's just one of those things. It's the trigger is not necessarily a position or movement, but more or less what they do internally. Alternative therapies, uh, acupuncture and acupressure. These are other, well, we do recommend sometimes if necessary to help us out as far as to help improve your, your back pain. Degenerative discs. Case study treatment approach. So up on, on, the, on the slide here, I have two movement uh, strategies for degenerative disc disease. And um, as Steve pointed out earlier in the slides and the presentation, stiffness in the movement for a degenerative disc is uh, one of a common presentation for people to present with. And the two, the two positions here on the left and the right are demonstrating repeated movements in a directional uh, a directional preference. So, so on the first one over here, uh, the patient is presenting a more of an extension bias type of presentation. And so the treatment is basically to repeat it back extension to improve both mobility 
And also sometimes in that degenerative disc slide, he also mentioned about radiating leg symptoms sometimes or neurological symptoms. And sometimes when you do repeated extensions, we actually can start to centralize those symptoms too as well. So instead of having symptoms going down your leg, repeated back extensions can allow it to start to localize it more to your lower back only. If that phenomenon does happen, your, your prognosis of getting your back treated well in a, in a two-week follow-up, you have a pretty good high uh, recovery rate from it. If it doesn't centralize, your prognosis is a little bit lower. doesn't mean that you can't be treated, but the repeated back, the repeated movements probably won't be your, your mode of treatment for uh, degenerative disc disease. If this does happen, definitely go and get your referral and come to physical therapy, and we'll be able to highlight those things for you. The one on the left is kind of an interesting one. It's more of a called a lateral shift correction. These patients are more or less uh, have a lateral um, side movement favorability. Um, patients usually come in and telling us that they have this feeling that they're kind of crooked a little bit. They're kind of walking in. They're feeling like this little side bend. And uh, part of that is because they need to kind of help straighten themselves up. Either acute inflammation of the disc itself. And so what we're trying to do is to try to improve the hydrostatic properties of the disc, as well as improve mobility and blood flow to the area, and hopefully to, again, similar to what we talked about earlier, centralize the uh, symptoms itself, and hopefully get yourself straighter again. So these are like home exercise uh, approaches, and with manual therapy, with physical therapy, we can definitely self-induce these with our techniques here, Um, but these are just highlights of a home program that we usually sent out if definitely if it was successful. I also want to add, as soon as the symptoms are reduced, the problem is actually not done from there. As physical therapy, what we do from there is actually um, to centralize symptoms or reduce the pain. Again, our focus is a functional limitation to improvement. So say, for instance, if I had pain just to do a squat and like 7 out of 10, 9 out of 10 pain, I go ahead and do this repeated back extension and it reduce my pain to, say, for instance, three or four. It gives me a better output to go ahead and work on like a squat or a lift, and that, that way I can work on the strength and deficits that most likely are contributed from your back problem from there. So these are more like a symptom management exercises that we use, not necessarily a strengthening exercises. Okay. Sciatica. Um, this is the one that uh, was talked earlier about the uh, back pain with radiating leg symptoms. And so the key point here, I have three pictures of pretty much positional traction. Um, trying to uh, open, if the disc is incriminating onto the nerve tissue, uh, we have various ways of being able to decompress the, uh, the site to decrease the pressure off the nerves. The picture on the left here here. The patient is sidelined, and uh, they have a small towel uh, on the side of their body there, so that way to help induce either a side bend or to even just to help keep their body straight. And from there, the top right shoulder is rotating back, and then the bottom leg, the top leg, is actually bent forward to allow the, uh, the bottom portion of the spine to rotate forward. So they're basically inducing a rotational twist opening, opening on the top side. 
So the treatment side, uh, basically the patient would be having pain on the right radiating leg symptoms if they're lying on their left side. And this is one of the treatment approaches we do do. How long do they hold it there? Well, as long as it feels good, it takes away the symptoms, and as they get up, if their pain is reduced and allows them to be functional, that's one of the interpretations we do from there. Okay? The other one is sitting down is one of the common things most people have symptoms from. So a lot of times we can use self-traction to lift the, the upper body up by using their arms. And that kind of lifts the upper thorax up as, a, as the pelvis is kind of sitting down lower. And so you're basically stretching the spine out to open it up that way uh, to help take off pressure off of the disc or whatever structures that are contributing to the inflammation or the area that's causing pain onto the nerves. And on the picture there on the bottom, the guy sleeping down there, uh, it's one of a favorite position for sciatica. Uh, lying on your back, just like uh, how the gentleman is doing with their legs elevated. One of the studies have shown that actually lying on your back kind of really helps reduce the uh, pressure off your back and the spine. It's um, almost like at least about 25% load off your spine compared to sitting and standing. So if anybody has problems of, of radiating leg symptoms and having pressure on your back, that might be a good way to do. However, you're not very functional, who lies on their back a lot. But if on a long day's work and you have back pain, that might be a great way to kind of relax and how to help calm the symptom down, the system down a little bit. Stenosis. Stenosis, um, most, as uh, in the previous highlight in the slide, there was at, uh, the narrowing of the spinal canal. And these patients really do not like extension. So degenerative disc, the difference between that uh, degenerative disc versus stenosis is definitely extension is bad for these people here. So like prolonged walking, leaning back, getting up from a floor, definitely these patients will have some problems with, uh, will reproduce their symptoms. So highlighted here are like couple exercises of flexion base, bending forward, uh, to allow to improve the, the space in the spinal canal to decrease pressure. Okay? So the first one here is basically a sit-up. Or you can do a partial sit-up if you can't do a full sit-up. That's one exercise. Number two is a pelvic tilt, a posterior pelvic tilt. So you're lying on their back and their pelvis is kind of thrusting a little bit forward. Exercise three over here is a knee to chest. This is a very common one. Everybody gets from their doctor. Single knee to chest, double knee to chest. Definitely opens the lower back and takes the pressure off of it as well. Exercise four here is actually a stretch. It's actually just reaching forward, touching your toes. You're trying to get the hamstrings more flexible. And again, in, by doing so, you're opening up the back part right over here to, again, take off pressure. Exercise five is actually a hip flexor stretch. Probably should have gotten you a better picture of that one, but I thought this was a good slide to kind of have a cohesiveness of, of a, a combination of flexion exercises that is um, it's called the Williams flexion exercise that is based off of being able to bend forward to kind of, again, open up the back. And number six is a squat. As you see, in a deep squat here, definitely open up the lower back and trying to kind of open up the spaces there. Obviously, you do not need to do all six just one of the sixes to kind of approve all those in movement patterns for you. Because sixes, you can see, for older individuals, might be a little hard, especially who are stiff. So I guess exercise number three might be a little bit more easier to kind of get into. 
So that wraps up as far as the treatment approaches, as far as for um, the three common diagnoses. Um, I guess we can take questions. If you guys have. Yes? I have a question. You're, uh, you address very well uh, what happens if you're injured and have a back problem. Yeah. Are there uh, ways that you can prevent yourself from having these symptoms uh, so that we don't have to see it frequently. <laughs> Short, yes. So the question was uh, basically how to manage it to prevent to come into seeing physical therapy. It's a very good question. Um, well, one is to keep moving. That's number one. Stay active. Do some exercises. Walking is not going to cut it. You have to do at least some type of physical exercise uh, doing some squats, sit to stands, join some Pilates, yoga, be active, go out, go get a hike or something like that. That is one way to do it. The other part is which we recommend actually is actually every once in a while go see your primary care doctor, see if you can get a referral to physical therapy just for a service of your body, just to check out how well you move. If your hips are moving well, if you have enough flexibility, do you have enough strength? We check our eyes, we check our teeth, you know. We do all this service for other parts of our body, but we never use any service for our body that we use every single day. So it's one of the things that I look at is like almost like servicing your car. You know, we do our maintenance, the oil change and everything. Why don't we do that for our bodies? If you want to do that, that's definitely will probably help minimize probably the amount of visits you probably need to come on back and probably potentially lower the amount of times you need to see us. That's our take on that part. Uh, uh, Certainly. Doesn't your data show you should never have an MRI for medical diagnosis? So. Because it costs you more, and the chance of erroneous diagnosis with MRI is 90%. So, yeah, so, I mean, we can take you back to that slide or we can we can certainly discuss that. And you're right, the, the, at this moment in time, the, the data is certainly showing that if we increase the number or the type of diagnostics, including x-rays and MRIs, then the cost of your treatment and the length of your treatment will go up. That is for sure what this, the data and the information is showing. However, there is a big caveat to that, and this is where um, we're a very simple way of looking at things, or there's, there's certainly a way of we can uh, boil um, or bring things down to a very fine point. There are certain reasons why x-rays and MRIs are very much needed. So if you have a trauma, or if you've been in a, a car accident, or fallen from a ladder or downstairs or you have certain other conditions such as osteoporosis or other health related concerns that may have made you at higher risk of say bone fractures or other traumas high level traumas that would again make you at higher risk of fractures then yes x-rays are very much warranted if you come in and you've been in a and you have a history of osteoporosis and a history of fractures and you've been in a severe car accident on the freeway at 70 miles an hour and I'm the first person you see and you've had this increasing pain in your lower back, I am likely to suggest that we take you to the emergency room and have that checked out first before I come and treat you. 
Now, the same applies for soft tissue-based injuries or, or other pathologies which are not bone-related, and that's where we would use the MRIs. And that can include if we have suspicion of infections and suspicion of cancer, suspicion of space-occupying lesions. Now, these are very serious medical conditions that a physical therapist cannot treat. That is where the relevance of imaging is very, very important. Now, where I would start to separate this is we have to start considering, and when we're doing our differential diagnosis and when we're looking at our subjective histories, is we will ask certain questions to get a, to get a clear idea of what we believe is going on. Now, if for any reason I have any concern about a patient, whether it's a suspicion of fracture, cancer, spatial occupying lesions, infection, or otherwise, then yes, it is important to, to get that imaged. Now, again, when I have that conversation with the patient, then I'll hopefully do a, a good job at explaining why we're sending for imaging without al alarming the patient or increasing stress regarding that. For everything else which is not requiring an operation, then the question is, why am I giving you an x-ray? Why am I giving you an MRI, or why am I suggesting it? If you're coming to see a physical therapist and we've ruled out all of those pathologies that are serious and are, are, are medical and, and need imaging, then the biggest question I have to ask is, what do you need an X-ray or an MRI for? I will tell you, or you will tell me, in fact, which way you can't move. You will tell me what you're limited with, whether it's stairs or um, sitting for prolonged periods of time or standing for prolonged periods of time. An MRI and an X-ray will not tell you how long you can stand for. It will not tell you how long you can sit for. It will only give you a static image of your anatomical structures. Now, if we've already suggested or we've already ruled out any serious pathology, and if we've ruled out the requirement for a surgical intervention, then I'm going to start questioning what added advantage is it going to do for me. Ideally, my diagnostic skills are going to be accurate enough that I can find that muscle that's limiting you or that spinal process or that level or that ligament or whatever structure it is that's causing your discomfort or limiting your ability and your, your functional prowess, then I should be able to find that with my assessment, with my functional and physical assessment. A static X-ray, a static MRI is, is not going to necessarily do that for me. Let me add, I think that X-rays are overused too. Mm. I went to your emergency Yep. Room with the ruptured tendon. Yep. It's a good X-ray. Yep. I agree. That's utterly absurd. I agree. You can identify the ruptured tendon with your th thumb and finger. Yep. And X-ray doesn't show you anything. I. It's an utter waste of money and time. Yep. You're. I'm afraid you're speaking to the converted. And the other aspect I would I would add to that is an X-ray is. I mean, the newer X-rays certainly are able to show some soft tissue injuries, but an x-ray is there predominantly for bone and joint related issues, if we're being very general. So if I believe you had a tendon rupture, I should really be using real-time ultrasound or MRIs, because that is the more uh, specific thing for that. You can feel it's gone. Uh, I, again, you're speaking to the converted. I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to question that. Um, we have a number of que questions, so if we just 
bounce round. I'm not picking anybody in particular order, so can I, it's just who's in my line of sight. So. So the question is, what is spondylolysis? And I will hand over to Dean. It's a a diagnosis from an anterior slippage of one of the vertebral bodies. Uh, Usually you will see this in, like, uh, people who are very mobile or repetitive stress on their backs, like dancers or gymnasts. Um, So these people are predisposed to usually having these types of problems. Um, the other reasons why they will have a spondylolisthesis uh, type of diagnosis, but that's one of the common ones that usually you will see. Um, there are structural deficits that usually can contribute to that type of problem, but um, that is something that's usually not known unless they have symptoms. Okay. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, I have a question about people like myself who perhaps are at the end of the line. I'm over 80. Mm-hmm. I've had three operations of two hips and one knee. I've got another knee to be replaced. Okay. Now, the only thing that they recommend at the moment is, a, is medication. What medication do you recommend? I tell you what I'm taking, opioid. Okay, so um, to repeat the question, and I hope I'll get everything on board, is... Um, <laughs> I don't know how to say this play, but for someone who's at the end of the line, I don't like that phrase, but okay. Um, um, who has had multiple operations, including two hip replacements and one knee replacement. And another knee, last knee. And another, uh, and another knee to come. Okay, what is the best form of treatment? Is that, is that fair? Um, and then you asked about medication. So... The first thing that I have to state and be very clear on is physical therapists are not allowed to prescribe medications. It is not in our scope of practice. So that really would be a conversation to have with your doctor or your pharmacist. So that. I've had those conversations. Okay. I just wondered what your thought was. Okay. So I will again take it back to a physical therapy based diagnosis. What are you limited with? What are you functionally unable to do? Now, should that turn around to be that we find that you're weak in certain areas or you have a lacking of movement or flexibility in others, then we will look to use whether it is manual therapy, exercise therapy, alternative therapies, whatever is, at our, uh, whatever is within our scope of practice and, and to our ability to actually improve those deficits, those limitations. And by improving those limitations, then we're actually looking to improve your quality of life and your functional ability. So that is how I would look to kind of phrase that. Does that answer the question, or does that give you a sufficient answer? Thank you all the same. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So the question was, uh, is electrical stimulation part of our practice, and do we use it? Um, yes, we do use it. Um, uh, to be at the UCSF faculty practice, we don't use it quite as often. Uh, the number one reason why is uh, we call it more of like a, a passive modality. It's a passive treatment. Um, it does help reduce the pain, 
But that's, the electrical stimulus is not the only treatment direction that we're trying to improve your functional impairment. Uh, if it's in the early stages, like the, the acute inflating stages, yeah, of course, we'll definitely have to use it. But in order for you to get you back on your feet and move around, it's not the gold standard that we see as far as your improvement to do the things you need to do. You're going to have a box on your body and just kind of work around and all that stuff. It's not really ideal. Uh, so we definitely have to teach you how to move better in order to, without pain. Because you have to ask the question, if yeah, you do need the electrical stim because of the pain, either because of muscle spasms or something, you might be moving incorrectly in the first place. So we have to address that first in order to get you moving forward. It's kind of like a medication, almost like. Doesn't always have to be. Uh, we definitely also use it on to help stimulate muscles, to turn it on, to you know, to facilitate, uh, to make sure you activate the muscles correctly that you want. Um, there's also use for swelling management, but at least as far as what we're using it for, the back pain is more for just pain management. Okay, sorry, we have another question at the back. For the last one, yep. Okay, so glucosamine for osteoarthritis, was that correct? Okay, so as far as I'm aware that the studies at the moment are recommending, if you're using glucosamine, you are looking at taking a dosage of about 1,500 milligrams to have an effect on um, the joint surface or the cartilage within that joint. So that's my understanding of the research at this moment. It may have changed since the last time I, I saw it or read, but there has been evidence to show that it does have an effect or it is beneficial. Um, again, it doesn't in itself replace or increase the, the total density of the cartilage, but it does have some, uh, some benefit from the research. Okay. Well, thank you all very much, and thank you for attending. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.